Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist for ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $112.4 billion in AUM, committed to delivering long-term results through active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in the areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues, Margaret Petrano and Devin Bauman. Margaret co-manages the ClearBridge Large Cap Growth Strategy and has over 20 years of industry experience. Evan's the co-manager of the ClearBridge Aggressive Growth and Multi-Cap Growth Strategies, also having 20 years of industry experience. So a little known fact to people listening, uh, we've been talking about this on the way over to the studio, uh, that Margaret and Evan are both Duke graduates. I'm a big UK fan, and we've uh, been bringing up some of the memories I've tried to bury down very deep of Christian Leitner's shot 25 years ago. As you can tell, I'm clearly not over it, nor do I think I ever will be. But that's not the topic of today's podcast. The topic is Roots to Growth. And I'll start off by getting a quick overview of the approach each of you take in generating growth in your portfolios. Margaret, I'll start with you. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, you know, when when Peter and I think about how we, we want to manage the strategy, it, it really is all about trying to strike a balance between being different from our index where we think we can add value and where we think we see something, but also being diversified enough so that we can perform relatively well through different kinds of business cycles and generate consistent returns over time. And striking that balance really works into everything we think about and how we think about valuation and portfolio diversification. Evan, any thoughts? It's like hell passing to Leitner now. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think that a lot of what Margaret said is true of our strategy, too. It, it goes back with uh, my partner, Richie Freeman, starting the strategy back in the early 80s to one of the longest tenured and longest term investment approaches that you're going to find in the growth space. So really, we look at ourselves as long term business owners, um, clearly trying to capitalize on earnings and cash flow growth over long periods of time and the compounding uh, impact of those long term investments. Turnover of the strategy is incredibly low. It's historically about 5 to 10%. So you're talking about 20-plus year holding periods of companies in, in great industries with great managements and you know really focus on cash and balance sheet strength as well. Also, what makes us unique as business owners is that we're really benchmark agnostic. So we're not worried about indices. We're not worried about passive investing. We're trying to buy, I'll say, a highly um, concentrated, high-conviction approach in relatively limited number of companies that we can hold for very long periods of time. So very high active share, very long-term type approach in terms of growth investors. And so that's, I think, one of the hallmarks of both of our strategies is being investors as opposed to uh, short-term traders. Great. So let's talk a little bit about the markets. And in talking about the markets, you have to talk about Donald Trump and his pro-growth agenda. And since he's been elected, you've seen improved investor sentiment and a pretty strong post-election rally that's in its fifth month, believe it or not. Now, Evan, how much, if any, does Trump's agenda inform your approach to growth? As I said, I think a lot of the companies that we own today, we've owned since the 80s and 90s. So you've been through a number of different administrations, a number of different uh, makeups of Congress. Um, I think politics is very difficult often to handicap in terms of What we do well is buying long-term business models at the right price. And I think that uh, to the extent that we can use volatility created by politics uh, to build or trim positions is often how we will approach things. 
Um, I think when you look at what Trump has said and what potentially can be done, one, there's a lot of uncertainty, which has created volatility. Um, clearly, from a positive perspective, the fact that he's spoken a lot about deregulation, repatriation, lower taxes, longer term is very positive. But you've also had some very sizable moves in certain sectors just since October, November of last year. So it's created some overvaluations as well in certain areas. And as you referenced, he's clearly more pro-growth by design, which also could potentially lead to higher inflation and higher interest rates. So there's a lot that comes with that. I think what we try to do is see through the noise, look really how the earnings of the companies that we own will be impacted by political change. And I think if you look just at the last 20 years, very often the initial rhetoric is not as impactful to actual earnings uh, or cash flows or revenue growth as is um, you know, priced in on the upside. So I think, I, I think there will be a lot of noise. There'll be a lot of headlines. We've seen it already, a tremendous amount of headlines just in the first um, couple of months. But I think that in terms of the stock market itself, historically higher interest rates could be negative um, for certain parts of the market. And I think that's starting to get priced into some of the more income generating equities. On the growth side, as you said, you've seen big moves in areas like infrastructure and commodity-related names uh, with the hopes that you're going to have um, big infrastructure spend and a, a big uh, stimulus package. So it's important to take a step back, look at how each of these policies will really impact the companies that we own or the companies we could potentially own and what's priced into the to the stock. To kind of summarize, a lot of noise, a lot of volatility, I think... Um, Often the, the uh, reality is maybe not as punitive or not as favorable as the initial rhetoric. So it's, it's taking a much longer term view towards these policy shifts. It's, it's interesting because I think um, Evan talks about having a decades out investment approach and investment horizon. You know, we think more of, in terms of years, um, three to five years. So when we think about, you know, what may happen over the next three to five years and think about what may happen with U.S. GDP growth, you know, we do think about the the moves that you've had in industrials and and whether we have the right exposure there. So, you know, we try to be a little bit more tactical in terms of understanding what the current administration's agenda is, what are the potential impacts, where if, and if we're correctly positioned. But that being said, I think, you know, both of us have very bottom-up stock selection driven strategies. So, it's really about finding good quality companies um, that you think can outperform over a longer period of time. And I think the biggest misperception is often that a good economy equals a good stock market. It's not necessarily true. In fact, for our purposes, much more important is earnings, cash flows, interest rates, and the direction of, of all of those things. So sometimes the, actually the worst environment could be an accelerating economy, whereas the best environment, as we've seen for the last eight plus years of, of a bull market now, have been basically subpar growth, albeit you know, a couple of percent growth but actually below potential growth with extraordinarily low interest rates. And psychology to me is really interesting because people have been nervous and skeptical the entire way up, which historically is a really good time to be buying stocks when people are, are scared and nervous. So you've actually had a very good environment for um, the market for, for the last number of years because not necessarily of economic growth, but more about um, interest rates and, and, and valuations and, and earnings and those types of things. And sticking with psychology, even with the move up that we've seen, you know, really since the beginning part of 2016, there's still a lot of investors that are on the sidelines and are in disbelief that this market can continue to move higher. 
So historically, that's usually a good sign that the market can continue to, to chug higher from here. Yeah, and, and if you look back at past periods when the market looked expensive, sometimes it stayed expensive for a year or two. So it's, it's not necessarily that, you know, that, that, um, that would rectify itself immediately, partially because of money flows, as you're talking. Yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of fully invested, scared bulls. And, and there's also a lot of people who have missed this entire move. So it's been, you know, we've called it the most unloved bull market in history because you haven't seen any kind of, even with you know the market having tripled in eight years, you haven't had that associated euphoria. You haven't had that associated um, you know, significant optimism in terms of equities the way you had in the late 90s going into 2000. So there's really... You know, in my opinion, you don't really have signs of a top because pe- markets rarely top out when everybody's nervous, when everybody's scared, when everybody's skeptical. Yeah, I do a lot of travel around the world, and the one thing I say is there's no conviction in anything. It's a really interesting time in that people are looking for excuses to sell stocks, but nobody's really getting excited. I mean, that's uh, typically actually a good sign for the long-term health of the bull market. doesn't mean we can't have a correction here and there. We're probably overdue for a normal correction because we are at all-time highs. But it's you're at all-time highs with a sustained rally with no optimism. It's an interesting period. And I think there really is a, a decent possibility that rates rise from here with these pro-growth policies. And investors are going to have to look at their asset allocation and, and think maybe I'm a little bit over-positioned on the fixed income side. If you do start to see some of that great rotation into asset classes that can participate in a rising rate environment like equities, you know, that could really be the fuel that drives this market higher. So, so Margaret, you've talked about positioning the large cap growth portfolio for a, a low growth environment and the importance of owning stocks with secure returns. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that means and maybe give us an example? Sure. When we think about companies, we we spend time thinking about not just, you know, is this company going to have a good quarter, but trying to look out a couple years and ask ourselves questions about whether this is a durable business. So, you know, I think Microsoft is a, a perfect example of this, because if you looked at Microsoft a couple years ago and the stock was in the 20s, there were a lot of people that were doubting that Office and um, and Windows were still going to be relevant several years from now. And so it was really being priced like a bond um, that it would not be relevant several years from now. Whereas I think the company has done a really nice job of repositioning itself in the cloud, improving its cloud businesses with the Azure business, so that I think now you can look out several years. And if you ask me whether I think Microsoft can still generate significant cash flow and returns three to five years from now, I would say highly likely. It still is, you know, the the, the de facto um, player in, in information worker tools. And so I think that remains relevant. And so, you know, when we think about owning a company like Microsoft, I would say, you know, we have a high degree of confidence in their ability to generate nice returns quarters out. It doesn't mean the stock is always undervalued. You know, we try to have some sensitivity to valuation and trim stocks that we think are closer to fair value and add more when we think they're undervalued. But a portfolio of companies that you think are, are quite durable performs well through the cycle. So biotech's an area that's come under scrutiny over the last several years, and it's one that you both target as a primary source of growth. Can each of you give me an outlook on what you think on the industry and why you believe these companies will continue to look attractive? Evan, I'll I'll kick it over to you first. Sure. So I'll make, as a preamble, I will just reiterate that we're business owners. So it doesn't mean if we talk about a sector like software or biotech or energy that we like every company within the sector. We're really looking for as Margaret touched upon, durable business models that can be sustainable and stand the test of time. 
and have long-term pricing power and, and barriers to entry and innovation and, and all of the factors that make, to me, biotech a really interesting investment area. And we've owned the sector since the early 80s. I mean, we were some of the original investors in Genentech. We've owned Amgen in the mutual fund for, for north of, of 30 years. And we've owned some companies today that are large cap in nature, like Biogen, since they were small or even micro cap companies. So again, speaks to the kind of the very long-term view that we have uh, within the companies that we own and the, the particular sectors. But I think today, having watched the space along with Richie for, for a very, very long time, literally since the sector was um, very much a science-oriented clinical stage um, sector as a whole, whereas today a lot of these companies have tremendous profitability, cash flow, and great balance sheets, we've never seen a disconnect between fundamentals and valuations. In other words, it's this is a sector that for many, many years traded at a big premium to the S&P, talking about the big profitable biotech companies, whereas today you're at probably a four to five turn discount as a whole for the companies like Biogen and, and, and Amgen um, on a valuation basis to the S&P. So you have better growth, um, you have cheaper valuation, you have you have amazing balance sheets, and you know we'll talk about repatriation, I'm sure, but a lot of the cash is overseas, but you still have tens of billions of dollars of cash on, on these corporate balance sheets. And all the skepticism, all the headline risk, if you will, has been around price. And it's not to, to ignore the, the issue. It's, it's again, it's saying, look at the particular companies that we own who have actually admitted and made it very clear that the days of growing simply through price increases are past. And, and I think that's an important distinguishing factor between what we own and some other companies is you need to own companies that are going to grow through increased volumes. In other words, find new treatments for unmet needs. So if you think on a global basis, where are the unmet needs? Well, there's diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's and, and a lot of rare diseases of which you know 90 plus percent of rare disease today still goes untreated. So those are the markets where companies will have price, where companies will uh, have pricing power and, and actually have the ability to grow you know, basically from zero into multi-billion dollar type markets because of the enormous unmet need in some of these therapeutic areas. And I've used the phrase before, I say unmet needs are unmet for a reason, because most drugs in areas like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and, and, and a lot of rare disease have failed. So if you're the first to market, if you have success in finding a innovative novel treatment for these diseases, you're going to capture a large part of that market. You're going to have patent protection. You're going to have government exclusivity. And I think before all said and done, given where valuations in the sector are today, I think you're going to get a tremendous wave of M&A, uh, meaning consolidation, merger and acquisition activity, because a lot of the bigger pharma companies, of which we don't own many uh, collectively, they're really essentially banks at this point that are selling um, drugs, many of which are in very competitive markets. Balance sheets are great, but they're looking for growth. And so I think before all said and done, they're going to look to the biotech industry, the biotech sector, which is really where we're finding the growth opportunities as a means of re-stimulating their own growth by buying uh, some of these biotechs at, at decent premiums to where they're trading today. Um, but to me, the valuations are unsustainably low for a lot of the, uh, the growthier biotech companies that we own. A lot of fear, there's a lot of headline risk, but those are typically, as we said earlier, those are typically the times to be investing if you have high conviction and you, ha you really know what you own. 
To me, one of the interesting things to think about is where are the biggest costs in the healthcare system and what could help address those bigger costs? And hospitals are a huge cost to the system. So drugs, to Evan's point, that address unmet needs and keep folks out of the hospital, they're going to generate a decent return because they can still save the overall system money. And, you know, I think it's it's absolutely important to recognize that there have been some bad players in the industry. You know, if you look at a company like Celgene, they've taken low single digit overall pricing over the last couple of years. Their targets going forward include low single digit kind of pricing, which I don't think is egregious. Um, and importantly, if you're it's 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 most important to think about the pipeline and look for robust pipelines. Obviously, not all these products are going to work, um, but where you do have companies that have a diversified pipeline of a lot of different products that could address those unmet medical needs, um, I, th I think there's real value there. And if you think about things from an industry perspective with the potential new FDA chief that Trump's going to appoint, you know, I think that the timeline and the cost involved of bringing a compound to commercialization is, is going to go down dramatically. You know, estimates have the average cost being anywhere from one and a half to two billion dollars in a timeline that takes 10 to 15 years. So mm -hmm. if they do end up shortening it, that should be a, a pretty nice boon to these biotech companies and being able to bring product to market. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's a lot like investing in the health insurers eight or nine years ago when there was a tremendous amount of fear, fear before uh, reality about the proposals as it regarded healthcare reform. And you had every major, you know, top tier health uh, insurer trading at three or four times earnings in hindsight. I mean, for great companies with generating a tremendous amount of free cash flow. And a lot of those stocks are up five, six fold from where they bottomed out back in 07, 08. So when fear is high, I think investors today have a very short term time horizon. I think you have a lot of event driven guys who are just fearful. I mean, Margaret and I talked you know, a few months ago how people were saying healthcare is uninvestable and they'd rather wait until the proposals about repeal and replace, about how the price landscape is going to change. They'd rather wait till that all clears up. But I think the time to buy stocks, the way if you were buying United Health Group in 2007, stock was trading in the high teens to low 20s. And today they're generating almost $200 billion of revenue and the stock is up eightfold from there. So this is the time, again, we're not market timers. I think it's important to, to just kind of reiterate that point. We're, we're business owners. And I think if you look at the U.S. and where's innovation coming from and where are valuations in a relatively full market as a whole, there are some really cheap sectors. There's some really cheap stocks. And a lot of them right now happen to be in the uh, in the kind of the innovative U.S. healthcare businesses. So let's switch gears over to technology. Tech has been a laggard since the election, but it's a staple of both of your portfolios. What will it take for technology to regain its growth leadership and what areas look attractive? Margaret, maybe you can weigh in first. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, tech has been a laggard and actually even more more of a laggard if you back at Apple, which has been a really nice outperformer since the election. You know, I think one of the things to think about is that tech spending overall, it modulates a little bit, but the, the changes haven't been dramatic. And so over the last four years, tech spending has been relatively consistent, whereas at the same time, industrials saw 
saw no revenue growth. Um, and so what you're seeing now is really money flow into more pro-cyclical kinds of sectors and out of the sectors that had held up relatively well over the last couple of years. Um, you know, what what makes that change? You know, I think any um, any pivot back <laughs> to, um, to more um, consistently generating cash flows, any questions about the pace of the recovery of the U.S. economy or the impact of higher rates, um, I think would certainly cause people to refocus on um, on tech. Um, you know, one, one of the shining spots within tech has been, and, and we continue to like it, has been internet. That's kind of a broad statement, but we really do believe in the growing adoption of the internet for a whole host of things, um, to make your mobile payments, to, you know, interact with your friends and family, to watch movies, to search for things. Um, and so, you know, there are a whole host of companies that we think are longer term secular beneficiaries beneficiaries of that um, of that trend. Evan, any thoughts? Yeah, I think a lot of growth managers have this obsession with tech. And that's that goes back to the beginning of time. You know, I think if you look at a lot of growth funds, they're always perennially overweighted tech, particularly some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, and to me, tech is, is a more, as Margaret just pointed out, it's a more cyclical area. I think it's really important what you pay for a technology company. And we spoke about biotechs and exclusivity and, and patents. And a lot of tech companies are in very competitive markets. They're constantly fighting for mind share and market share. And even in the internet, barriers to entry are actually pretty low. And, and what you tend to get is the biggest companies win, regardless of where the market's going, just because of their size and scale. But I, I think it's important to the price you pay for a technology stock. So there are certain companies where I think the businesses are durable, where there is some uh, IP or some patents uh, that makes it, you know, for us as a long-term business owner, investable. But I think there's, you know, and, and some of those areas would be, for example, storage, um, you know, companies that focus on niche markets within the semiconductor space where there actually is um, really some some patentability or, or some barriers to entry because of kind of top tier products that they're selling. Um, areas like LED lighting have been an interesting area for us for a long time just because of the size of the market and companies like Cree, which have actually gone on to show in the last 12 months that they can actually monetize their IP, actually start to get paid for their patents. I think that's really important to us as, as business owners. But you know, there are times where we've been, if you look historically, I mean, again, the fund's been in existence since, since the early 80s, and we've had big overweights to tech at certain points, like the early 90s, and there are other times like the late 90s, where everything in tech, to me, was grossly expensive, not even talking about some of the companies that had no business models, but everything in tech was trading 40, 50 times earnings and up. So I think it's important to, to own the good businesses. I think it's important also to, to be more tactical at times in a sector like technology, where there's a lot of competition, there's a lot of very well-funded competition for the big markets. And I think, to Margaret's point, you want to own Really, the, the long-term winners tend to be the biggest companies that can can play everywhere. And, and um, I think a lot of the smaller companies face a lot of competition. So they either get bought out or they get, get pushed out. And I think it's really, for us, you, you, we're looking at areas where we can own them for 20 years. And tech today, I think, is tricky. I think it's uh, a lot of those stocks have had big runs. So it's important, again, to, to kind of be more tactical in an area like tech. So one of the key differentiators for both of your portfolios has been owning stocks and investing in areas that aren't considered traditional or, or popular growth sectors. Evan, let me start with you. How do you gain technology exposure in some of the names that aren't widely held compared to the benchmark? We define a growth stock as something that goes up. 
meaning we're clearly, as I said, we're not benchmark centric. We've never owned in our fund and our products, we've never owned Apple, Google, and Amazon. So that tells you how different we are from other growth managers. Just by design, the, the goal is to get the ones right that we own and not worry about benchmark investing, not worry about passive investing. But I think, again, there's you're looking for durable businesses that generate a tremendous amount of cash, so software and storage and um, certain um, areas, even like energy, which at times to us looks really interesting because valuations get so inexpensive. So it's it, it's less about what sectors we own. It's less about what others might own, and it's more about you know finding areas of growth. I mean, today we have a big exposure in the media space, especially in some of the programming assets because they – again, have pricing power, they gen generate a tremendous amount of cash flow, and I think they're in, in an area that's going to go through a tremendous amount of consolidation, the way you've seen in some of the distributors within the media space. So we'll go anywhere. It really is the type of fund where we, 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 we worry less about sector over and underweights, we worry less about certainly relative exposures, and we just worry about finding a, a number of you know, well-positioned, well-run long-term growth businesses where managements are, are really well-trained and capital allocate smartly. So we can go anywhere. I mean, today we have really um, healthcare, media, tech, and energy as kind of the four key areas, but doesn't mean we can't find a stock in one of the other sectors. So Margaret, continuing on with this idea of non-traditional growth, what role does your cyclical exposure play as a source of growth and diversification? Well, you know, I, I think there are a lot of different definitions of, of growth. And if, if you ask me, you know, what constitutes a growth stock, it can mean terrific outsized revenue growth. It can also mean Schlumberger going from earnings less than two bucks to something two to three X that amount. That's still good growth to us. And I think that can really add value in a portfolio. So when we think about investing in companies, you know, we're really asking ourselves, you know, when I look out several years, what does this company look like? What is what is the revenue growth? What is the earnings growth? What is the cash flow growth? And how much how different is it versus today? Um, and I think having kind of that broad definition of growth has helped us do things like be overweight energy, which last year was was a nice contributor to performance, or be underweight consumer staples, where you look at that and to us, you know, especially with a relatively um, negative outlook for emerging markets, it's hard to see terrific growth from many of the consumer staples companies, either on the revenue or the free cash flow or the earnings. Um, and valuations um, seem quite stretched, so we think we can do better. So I think just you know looking at, looking at it over the longer term and trying to have um, a, a relatively broad definition of growth has helped us to be a little bit different from the index and hopefully add value by being different from the index. Now, Margaret, you just mentioned being overweight energy, which is something both of your portfolios have. If you look at the energy sector, it's been supported by a stabilization here of oil in the $50 to $60 barrel range. And you've seen renewed signs of U.S. production and rig counts rising. Where are you both seeing opportunities in that space? So, again, it's, it's specific companies. So it's it's everything. If you look, go back 12, 13 months to, to last January and February, if a company basically could have thrown a dart and made money since that time, as long as the company stayed solvent, right? You had essentially a margin call going on in the entire commodity space. Last January, you tested the lows in the market and in that sector in February, and you've had a tremendous rally since then. So it's important, as we've discussed earlier, to focus on top tier quality assets, good management teams, 
And in, 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 in an industry like that, particularly balance sheets, companies that are able to you know, survive, essentially survive, and, and in some cases thrive through a downturn. And, and I think what we're seeing now, as you said, I mean, pricing is right around 50. So a lot of companies have fewer issues from a balance sheet perspective than they had a year ago, but the stock prices across the board are up a lot as well. So again, it's important to what you pay for a cyclical industry like energy and particularly some of the asset heavy oil companies have had tremendous moves higher. I think you really, from this point, um, need oil prices to move sustainably higher over the longer term for a lot of those equities to work. Where the opportunities lie, and Margaret talked about Schlumberger, in the service space, I think is where you're starting to really now start to see the inflation trade kicking in. In other words, you've had, I guess, two and a half years of a tremendous amount of deferred capex. There's been very little capital spending because the market had been so weak for so long. And so you have two to $300 billion that haven't been spent in terms of infrastructure, in terms of investments that typically would have been made in a space like oil service and, and, and oil drilling companies, new equipment, uh, retrofitting old equipment with new safety features and things of that nature. So that's really a big part of the market right now where we're seeing opportunity is in the service space, in the drilling space, in the equipment space, where you have the potential of pricing against just stays stable for a pretty sizable move higher in some of these these uh, equities, just because you have you know years worth of investment that has to be uh, has to be made, and so that's I think it's we've had an energy overweight for a long time, but I think it's again it, it feels like this is a period where it's it's important to take profits in certain companies, but also I think there's if you have a longer term view, there's still a tremendous amount of opportunity in in certain business models within the energy service space. Evan, you took the words out of my mouth because I was just thinking, you know, both of us are overweight energy, but I don't think either of us have um, any great insight as to where oil prices are going to be next week or next month. It's really about the longer term and thinking about what is the on, on a global basis, what's the cost of extracting a barrel of oil from the ground? And that that price is is higher than the current price. That that doesn't mean the price is going to go directly to that. It just means that unless we have a global economic slowdown, we should, you know, consistently march towards that over the next couple of years. So um, I, I think you're I think you're right. I think we see inflation as as an issue. I would say within the EMPs, one of the things we've been thinking about is um, think about companies that are more vertically integrated. So they might have a little bit of protection against that inflation and that may help them fare better in a rising price, rising cost environment. So M&A has been robust over the last couple of years and with repatriation potentially bringing a lot of that overseas cash back here in the U.S., you know, there's estimates of around $2.4 trillion locked up abroad. Do you expect M&A to continue to be a source of growth and what areas do you think that activity will be the strongest? Yeah, I think a lot of companies have been in a pickle for for a long time in, in that they have these great balance sheets, but they can't really access the cash. So they've been you know, borrowing against overseas cash in, in terms of even deals like Microsoft LinkedIn, right, Margaret? I mean, you had $100 billion plus of cash on Microsoft's balance sheet, but they used the debt markets to finance the, the deal because they couldn't access their overseas cash. So with a repatriation bill, I think it would be enormously stimulative to the stock market. I mean, you, you'd have clearly probably some sort of, of stimulus package associated with it. So you'd see a lot of companies that would be building U.S. And that's a big part of the Trump agenda is to build and, and be innovative and, and, and hire U.S. And so you'd see a lot of that if, if some of that cash was brought back. But you'd generate hundreds of billions of dollars of tax revenue overnight. You'd have companies suddenly that would look extremely 
I'd say under levered and overcapitalized because they'd have, you know, look at some of the big tech companies have, you know, $100 billion plus in cash that they can't access. Suddenly they'd have full access to make acquisitions, to buy back stock, to pay higher dividends. Um, and I don't think that's priced in. And in areas like healthcare, where we talked earlier about valuations being well below the market, and a company like Amgen, which has 34 of its $38 billion, so 90% of its cash parked overseas, that they would then have access to to do all of the, the factors that I mentioned in terms of buybacks and M&A. So I think it would lead clearly to a more robust economy from a hiring and a building perspective. But I think from a pure equity perspective, you, you've really had overregulation and you've had no access to overseas cash. Repealing and, and um, you know giving companies access to that cash, it could be a big boon. I think there's the two obvious areas, tech and healthcare in terms of M&A. But I think areas like media, areas like um, even energy, where you have a lot of a lot of cash parked overseas, could be a real real stimulus for the stock market itself. We have seen several years of of increasing M and A. Um, so look at the semiconductor industry. As that industry has matured, it's it's largely rolled up. Um, but it, you know, as part of the repatriation question, it's also important to think that um, you know the Washington seems to be a little more eager to um, and willing to accept mergers that maybe they haven't over the last couple of years. So I'm not sure that the number of acquisitions picks up, but certainly some of the ones that before you might have thought, gosh, there's no way that would be approved in Washington. I think going forward, I think companies may actually be willing to try it because there may be a chance that um, deals like that would get through. And I'll just point out, we collectively had a lot of companies acquired. We've also had some companies that have made acquisitions. We don't seek out takeover targets. And I think it's, again, to kind of reiterate, both of our growth strategies are valuation conscious. So we're trying to buy sustainable growers at the right price with, with again, durable business models and barriers to entry. And historically, those are the types of attributes that bigger companies will look for as well. You know, we're not buying something with the hope it gets taken out. But I think the um, what tends to happen in an area where you haven't had a tremendous amount of takeovers like healthcare, once the first one happens and it's at a big premium and suddenly you start to revalue sectors like that, I think that could lead to almost a domino effect uh, effect in areas like media, healthcare, or tech, where you could have you could have a spate of of deal activity and we never know who it's gonna be or who's gonna get taken out. But I think that's that's something that could surprise investors on the upside. I absolutely agree with that. I think that, you know, strategic buyers are thinking out longer term, similar to, way, to the way we're thinking. And if, a, if an asset is undervalued by the equity markets, that's what, that's what interests us both. Well, great. Well, that's all the time we have here for today. As always, thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Evan, for joining us and giving us your perspective. And thank you, everybody, for joining in and listening. We hope it's been helpful. Thank Take you. Care. Go, Go Blue Duke. Devils. Go Duke. Go UK. <laughs> Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of March 9th, 2017, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. Thank you.